When we cover murder stories, we typically hear two tales, the perpetrator's story and what happened to the victim. If we go really deep, we hear the pain of the victim's family. Yet there is another side we rarely cover, the victimization of the murderer's family. How does it feel to be tagged with that lifetime moniker of being the brother, sister, father, mother of someone who has committed the worst crime imaginable? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. On December 3, 1977, 16-year-old high school junior Richard Lesser is walking alone toward a footbridge behind Hungry Harbor Road in North Woodmere, Long Island. The bridge crosses over Mott's Creek near Valley Stream, just south of Queens. It is a suburban, prosperous area of the island, full of lawyers, doctors, and Wall Street types. A gifted young man with the promising future of college ahead, Richard Lesser is on his way to work, a part-time job at the Hewlett High School Library, which is about a 40-minute walk from where he's at. It's just before 9 a.m. The morning is chilly. Richard is bundled up, walking stiffly as the Long Island winter wind blows at his face. But just as Richard is about to walk over the bridge, a 23-year-old man seemingly comes out of nowhere and approaches him. Although he doesn't really know the man, Richard undoubtedly recognizes him because they live just four houses down from each other in North Woodmere. Words are exchanged. Some yelling ensues. Nearby neighbors hear several things going on. One, loud shouting from the bridge, and two, Richard Lesser screaming. As neighbors begin reacting to the commotion, the 23-year-old man brandishes a knife and, without warning or reason, begins stabbing Richard. This is a brutal, violent attack the boy has little defense against. In total, that man strikes Richard Lesser's body 26 times, and Richard dies on the spot. As I say at times on Crossing the Line, most murders are not as hard a riddle to solve as what we see in the movies. This one is no exception. As Richard Lesser falls to the ground, bleeding to death, his assailant simply walks away. He doesn't run. He heads back toward his home, which is just about a five-minute stroll away. By this time, several neighborhood boys have run out of their homes and begun chasing after the killer. They know this guy. He lives in the neighborhood. He doesn't seem to be trying to get away, and yet he is able to get home without being accosted by the neighborhood kids. By 3.30 p.m. that day, detectives are knocking on doors, asking questions throughout the tight-knit community. 
Whispers of one name begin. Roy Slutsky. This is all detectives here. Roy Slutsky. Every time they knock on a door, he's the guy who did it. Within hours, Roy's father gives him up. And Roy is found at his parents' house, where he lives, and hauled in for questioning. He is charged with murder two hours later. There is no question Roy Slutsky murdered Richard Lesser. The question becomes, why? Let's fast forward from that cold day in 1977, 45 years later, to March 2nd, 2022, the Upper West Side of Manhattan, New York, just a few blocks north of Hell's Kitchen. It's on that night this week's case begins to tell a story very few have heard. A comedian takes the stage at the Triad Theater near 8 p.m. She sits down on a stool in front of a packed house. She's there to present a one-woman show for one night only called The Day the Laughter Stopped. We all have stories. Some people tell it better than others, but we all have stories. And that's what makes our lives what they are. So my life started out in North Woodmere, Long Island, which is on the South Shore and what they call the Five Towns, if anybody knows of that. Um, my mom, Millie, was an interior designer. She came from a pretty wealthy family. Um, they uh, stem from Ukraine, from Kiev. Yes. And Slutz is, is where, yes, it's where the sluts of the world are made. You know, people think my name is made up. What? I say, yeah, it's my stage name. I, I chose it, and people believe that. Hello! Anyway, it's memorable. A woman in the audience that night contacted me. You need to tell Laura's story, she says. It's different. A different side of the murder narrative we are so familiar with. So I call Laura Slutsky and we speak. Laura is a very funny woman. A great storyteller. And convicted murderer Roy Slutsky's sister. I enter into any story I tell, first and foremost, as a victim's advocate. And I don't want to take anything away from the savage murder of Richard Lesser or his family's pain, but I'm interested in looking further out into that ripple effect in every single murder I often talk about and the way such an unfathomable crime reverberates through people's lives. I think about this all the time, Phelps. We talk about the victim's families, but... If you're the sibling or the family member of someone who is a killer or who does something heinous, the adopted guilt that you would feel, even though you have no responsibility for what the person did, you would just feel so horrible and so guilty and like, why didn't I know? What more could have I done? Or, you know, that person's looking at me funny. Do they know who I am? That's Catherine Law, by the way, my producer on Crossing the Line. Hi. Catherine, you make a great point. This is the reason I wanted to do this episode, because Laura addresses all these things. And for the most part, that's what she's going to talk about. That's what you're going to hear from her. But let's talk a little bit about Laura and how her life continued from that point on. For much of her adult life, she has been responsible for some of the advertising many of you, like me, have seen, casting, directing, and producing testimonial commercials for TV, radio, and print. 
Phelps, do you mean infomercials? I am praying you mean infomercials. Like the Floby and the... Um... The Suck Cut. No, that's Wayne's World. <laughs> yeah, that's Wayne's World. No, we don't want to go there. That's funny, but I don't think so. Uh, the Slap Chop. <laughs> the Wonder Mop. I think Laura did some more serious things. Okay. Which she talks about a little bit, actually. Mm-hmm. Laura was born and raised in Brooklyn, but her dream, her passion has always been comedy, a space where she found a way to deal with a moment in her young adult life when everything changed and in so many ways defines who she is throughout the rest of her life. And I should note that Laura, at the time of the murder, was on the verge of breaking through in the world of comedy. My brother um, was three years younger and his name is Roy. Different kind of kid than I was. He was blonde hair, blue-eyed. I was left in the oven a little too long. Um, be that as it may, Roy was an athlete. Uh, he picked up a tennis racket. He became a tennis pro. He picked up skis. He skied. Everything Roy did in sports was amazing. But we were not friendly. I don't know if that happens a lot with brothers and sisters, but we were not. I was very smart, and he was very popular and a sports guy. Laura says her parents had no idea how to handle Roy. He was very different from day one. As he grew older, Roy experimented with drugs. Laura recalls finding a large bag of weed in his closet one day when she was young. And Roy, you know, we're talking about a big dude, six foot four. That run with weed turned a corner into habitual LSD use for Roy. And according to Laura, that acid he took fried Roy's brain. Prior to that, Roy was scouted by the Montreal Expos, a major league baseball team. He had everything going for him, Laura says. He could have gone on to be a major league baseball pitcher. Uh, he went to Alfred State College, Nassau Community College. And this is where the first major crack exposes itself, showing the family that something is terribly wrong with Roy's brain. In college, it came to light for the first time. And then we got a call that he was running naked in the halls of the college. So it sounds like if it was cause for this much concern, it was more than just your typical college dorm streaking. Like this is the... 70s, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal, but obviously it was more than just that. This is that schizophrenic type of stuff we hear from time to time. You know, a dude is in Bryant Park in New York and he's naked from the waist down and he's talking about Armageddon. That's this type of stuff. This is not, you know, sorority running through the hallways without your clothes on. Yeah. And when someone has a really serious mental illness, often that starts to show itself in college. Some start around 27, but this is the time that you start to see those things come out. I'm glad you brought that up because this type of severe mental illness, as you said, seems to come out around that time. As Roy begins to fall apart mentally, Laura dives deep into her career to avoid what is a chaotic, trauma-filled life at home. She feels invisible because the entire focus is on Roy and his growing list of mental health issues. She starts working as a producer on a television show that was actually the forerunner to what is 60 Minutes Today. And it's there where she begins to meet people. 
So I got friendly with a guy by the name of Jerry Rivers, um, who decided one day he's going to become Puerto Rican. So his name became Geraldo Rivera. Hold that for the later part. Yeah, Jerry Rivers. And his mother's Jewish. But murder is like a bomb going off inside a family. Whether you are on one end of the crime or the other, it's the last thing you expect to ever become a part of your life. It comes out of nowhere. One day you are going through life dealing with the daily stressors we all face, and the next, kaboom. It all changes with a phone call or knock on the door. I cannot stress this enough. You are never prepared for it. No matter which end of the crime you are on, there is no one response to it. No one way to cope that works for everyone. Phelps, this makes me think that you've been through a similar experience. And was that how it was when your family found out your sister-in-law was murdered? You were the one that took the call, right? Yeah, it was kind of like that. Um, My brother, Mark, he's living with me at the time. Him and Diana had been separated and she had moved in with a friend of hers in Hartford. And I take a call from my other brother, Tommy, and he says, hey, you know, Diana was strangled last night, pillowcase put over her head. Now, at the time I take the call, my brother Mark is at the store. And what, what's, what's doubly troubling about all of this is that we all knew that she was five months pregnant at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so my brother comes home um, and he walks in the door and I'll never forget this. He walks in the door. He's got two bags of groceries, one in each hand, plastic bags. He's holding them. And he looks at me and he says, she's dead, huh? And he drops the bags. It was like he knew it was written on my face. So, and it's strange because, I mean, I don't want to get too far into this, but I'll talk about this all in one episode someday. But it's strange because we all kind of never expected either of them to live that long because of the lifestyle they led. But it's always alarming when murder happens, you know? Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean... She was murdered. All of a sudden, you're sitting there with your head in your hand saying, my God, somebody murdered her. Somebody somebody strangled her, you know? Right, which is so personal. And, you know, it's not like shooting somebody from across the road. I mean, that's like you're in it when you're doing something like that. Yeah, she wasn't accidentally shot by a stray bullet. I mean, somebody got on top of her and her... And her five-month pregnant belly, and they strangled her Ugh. to death. So our lives were twisted upside down in that one totally. moment. You know, I don't know what else to say about it other than I knew at that moment that my brother Mark's life was over, mm-hmm. and he died some years later of what I say is the longest suicide on record because he just went downhill right after that. What if you take that call and it's about your own brother. Yeah. And the person says, Hey, Roy has just been charged with murder. He stabbed somebody 26 times. Right. As I said, there's not even a question that Roy committed this homicide and it's a vicious crime. And the victim is a young boy. And now people, especially Richard Lesser's family, they want answers. They need a place to put all that pain. Right. Yeah. Why would Roy do this to a child? What motivated him to walk out of his house with a knife and kill his own neighbor, who's a child nonetheless? Clearly, 
he was in a very unstable state of mind. In fact, Roy Slutsky had just been released from a psychiatric facility two days before stabbing Richard Lesser to death. So let's take a break here. When we come back, you'll hear more from Laura as her life is forever changed by a crime her brother committed. And you will not believe what happens next. Roy Slutsky was that ticking time bomb, a powder keg. Leading up to the murder, he has shown indications that he is not dealing well with reality. Voices in his head, erratic conversations that have no basis in reality, leaving the house and roaming around, not knowing where he is, saying bizarre things that others just cannot understand. The latest data is that as little as 10% of people living with schizophrenia are prone to violent episodes. So I wanna be clear on that. Most people with this type of mental illness will never become violent, especially with proper treatment. Not even a year after Richard Lesser is murdered, Roy is in Nassau County Court facing what is life behind bars for the slaying. Remember what I said before the break, Roy had just been released from Long Island Jewish Hillside Medical Center December 1st, 1977, only 48 hours before he murders Richard Lesser. In a trial by judge, meaning Roy and his defense team chose to face a judge instead of a jury of his peers, Roy Slutsky is found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect based on the testimony of two psychiatrists. Here's what one psychiatrist said at trial, that Roy had, quote, a compulsion to kill to assert his manhood after homosexual advances were made to him two years before the murder, and he had chosen his victim at random, end quote. Okay, so I looked it up, and here in the States, the plea of insanity is used in approximately one percent of all court cases. So it's actually way less than I thought it was, and it's actually only successful in one quarter of 1% of court cases. Think about that. 0.025% of insanity cases turn out not guilty. Roy is ultimately remanded to the custody of the State Department of Mental Hygiene in New York, sent to a mental facility, and sentenced until the time he is deemed sane enough to be released, but only after a court hearing regarding his condition. Wow. So there's really a very likely chance that he could get out. Yeah. If he can prove during a court hearing that he's sane enough for release, they cut him loose. Which is kind of what just happened when right before he murdered Richard Lesser. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Right? Hmm. Interesting. He hadn't committed a murder before that, though. Right. That's the important part. It's 1978 when he's put in that facility. So there is a really good chance that he could walk out one day a free man, which just doesn't seem fair or just if you look at it from the point of view of Richard Lesser's family. I mean, because if this happened anywhere else besides liberal New England, um, the upper crust society in New York, to anyone else besides a guy like Roy Slutsky, a white man from a wealthy family, he would have been found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life. There's no question about that in my mind. And yet, I think 
that would have been a tragedy in this case as well, because it's clear, it's clear that Roy Slutsky is mentally ill, severely. Look, it's no secret the mental health system in this country is broken, and we're really doing little to fix it. I mean, why was he discharged if it seemed like he was in a dangerous state? Because point in fact, some mentally ill individuals are dangerous. Seymour Lesser, a lawyer, and also Richard Lesser's father, is of course outraged by this conclusion. And why wouldn't he be? He calls the state law that this decision is based on horrendous. Then things take a turn for the litigious. Imagine that with a bunch of lawyer dads. (laughs) Spoken as a person whose last name is Law and has a lawyer dad. (laughs) Seymour Lesser files a $10 million lawsuit against Laura and Roy's parents, Mildred and Herman Slutsky, under the presumption that they failed to have their son confined. Then he sues the hospital that released Roy for malpractice. The main reason? Because Roy had been released, remember, just two days before Richard's murder. I mean, I'd say that's a solid case for the Lesser family. Let's not forget Laura, who is an innocent casualty in all of this as well. It's a Mm -hmm. situation she had nothing to do with, aside from being connected to Roy by blood. Right, guilt by association. And she struggles emotionally to this day, even as she's in her early 70s, to get to the core of what it is that actually happened. I think it's clear to me after digging deeply into the facts of this case that Roy would have murdered someone that day, regardless of who happened to be in front of him. Richard Lesser was sadly and tragically in the wrong place at the wrong time. And as we will soon hear, he wasn't Roy's first intended victim. Um, This is tough, but I'm going to tell it. Roy uh, got kicked out of every baseball place and everything. And uh, I brought tissues just in case, but I won't cry. Roy, um, his brain went on him from LSD. And um, it was the summer of Sam. Remember that? So my mother thought Roy was Sam. So she locked herself in the bedroom. Roy heard voices he would stay downstairs and he would talk to Hitler and he had a cat of nine tails. And um, I'm his older sister. My life was different and I want to meet Mr. Wright and live my life. And when there is a sick child in a family, and this happens, the parents go to the sick child and I was left alone to fend for myself. A few things to unpack there. Laura mentions how her mother believed in her heart Roy was responsible for the serial killings going on in New York at the time, which were known as the Summer of Sam murders. That killer, who most know better as the Son of Sam, terrorized New York City from July 76 to July 77, picking random residents off from afar like a sniper with a 44 special revolver. New Yorkers were living in fear every time they walked out of their homes. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, was arrested in August 1977 for eight murders. Can you imagine, though, Roy and Laura's mother, she thought Roy was the summer of Sam killer based on his behavior. 
So that tells me that this isn't like a one-off moment that he went and killed Richard Lesser. That's a pattern of behavior that he was exhibiting violence, whether or not there's really a record of it, other than the streaking on campus situation. The family knew. Uncontrollable behavior, and they knew about yeah. it. I mean, to the point where the mother thinks he's son of Sam. That 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 right? just blew me away. This is the stuff I think about because, yeah, the family knew about it, but what can they do? Especially in the 70s, there's not a lot of mental health resources. Therapy is not a common thing. There's nothing that this family can do to control his behavior. Like, he's an adult. He's on his own. He can make his own choices. And they're just there to suffer the consequences of his actions. Here's Laura. One night I had to call the police because Roy was foaming from the mouth and he was attacking my dad. The Slutskys, I think it's important to note, were a very public family. Laura's mother was a decorator, and everyone in the borough knew her work. Her father worked in finance. After the attack on his dad, a few years before he murders Richard, Roy had been sent to Hillside, a psychiatric hospital, where he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and put on a series of medications. The day of the murder... Laura is living in an apartment not far away from the family home. She's ill. Her parents and Roy are slated to go on a trip together, but Laura's mother is at her apartment caring for her. And here's what happens. Little did I know that that morning, Roy, the night before, bought a nine-inch knife, came home, looked at my dad that morning, shook, walked out, walked towards the creek down the road on Hungry Harbor Road, saw a young boy and Roy uh, in the daylight knifed him 26 times. He took the knife, came home, and said to my dad, I need my prolixin. I didn't take my medicine. And he went downstairs and he... Uh, my father knew he had to give him his son. Now, I'm home in New York City in my studio apartment on East 56th Street being cared for by my mom. She does not know, and I don't know. Uh, my father called the police, helicopters over the house, and Roy was given up to the police. When we talk about mental illness and murder, I believe Laura humanizes that dynamic extremely well. We sometimes don't want to believe or accept that when a vicious murder such as the one committed here happens, that the perpetrator literally has no concept of what they're doing. For those of us who don't suffer from schizophrenia or, or know someone who does, it's hard to believe it's even possible. It's a part of the murder story in general we rarely look deeply into and study. There are so many cases we have heard about where the perp lies and claims insanity, to try to get away with the crime, right? We all know that narrative. Mm -hmm. We become a bit jaded by the insanity defense, or at least I do when I see certain people try to use it. Well, and that's why it was so surprising that it's only 1% because we hear about it all the time as if it's like a get out of jail free card. Well, that's why it's 0.25% yeah. <laughs> successful. It's clear the perp is nothing more than a sociopath trying his best to beat the system. We've seen this. But then you come across a case like Roy's, where all the evidence points to a guy legitimately 
out of touch with reality. He murders Richard in broad daylight. He walks home with the murder weapon, blood all over him in the knife. He tells his dad he forgot to take his meds, then walks downstairs, sits down to watch TV. This is not someone trying to get away with murder. Listen here as Laura describes what happens next. I had a small black and white TV set near my bed, and uh, I hear Roy Sletsky charged with second-degree murder. I jumped to my mother to protect her. She said, what did I hear? I said, you didn't hear anything, Mom. Called my father. He was there in about 25 minutes. He told my mother he was at a meeting for Coca-Cola or something to do with investments, but he came up. The whole family came over. My mother wanted to kill herself. She was going to take a bottle of Valium. My father was a very strong man. He had been in World War II, and he was he could handle it. Grandma Fanny came over. The whole family came over, and everybody was caring for my mother and such. And uh, there I was in the corner, all alone. All alone. 24. 24. I have everything ahead of me. My marriage, my career, my life. (sighs) Blown up. Blown. Shattered. I'm going to take a brief break here, come back and tell you the last part of this story. And if you haven't, please subscribe to Crossing the Line. Phelps, I think some people might have a hard time having compassion for this family because they think, oh, well, they knew. They knew exactly what was going on with Roy. But I imagine that the family must have felt so powerless. And I think people forget there's this third side to the murder narrative that you make a really good case for. I hear what you're saying. I get what you're saying. When I first spoke to Laura, my mind wanted to judge immediately. Mm. How can I make this story work within the context of being a victim's advocate? That was number one. Right. But Laura, I learned through getting to know her and her story, she is a victim as well. In fact, let's get into that and allow Laura to explain how her life changed when her brother became a monster within the community they lived. So what happened was the whole family left my family because it's mental illness and it had that little added attraction called murder. Geraldo Rivera, remember I said hold on to him, the bastard, went on ABC TV knowing me on my birthday, June 19th, and told the world. More shunning continued. People at her job, her boss, her friends deserted her. She couldn't date anyone unless she lied about who she was. I'm sure it was all over the papers, and that's obviously a pretty memorable last name. People whispered and said nasty things to her everywhere she turned. How could she continue with her dream of being a comedian when... The town mocks her. Nobody wants to hire her. Men don't want to date her. And her parents are focused on Roy and basically forget about her. How do you make people laugh when you're crying or maybe even dying inside? But I knew I wanted to be funny. That's all I wanted to be was funny. (laughs) So I kept doing shows. Yeah, I kept doing shows. 
And um, I worked at Catch, Rising Star on 2nd Avenue. I worked at the Improv. Now, how I got into the Improv, now what this was all is a Yiddish word, surus. With all the surus in my family, I had to find me. So I worked at, uh, at the Improv. And I, I, I didn't want to wait on line. I'm Laura Slutsky. Nobody knows me. But I didn't care. I wanted to be famous. So I, uh, Danny Aiello at the time was the bouncer. Andy Kaufman was working there. I would work uh, right before a guy named Larry David. You heard of him? Yeah. He was always miserable. His fun, I mean, he was never happy. Larry, be happy. He's never happy. This is never, I'm not very happy. So um, I remember one guy said to me one night, you're too pretty to be a comedian. Where is that guy? Where is that guy? So um, I, uh, Richard Belzer, does anybody remember Richard Belzer? Yeah. He said to me at Catch, you're the most effing unfunny woman I've ever known. Your material stinks, but you are funny. Well, I'm then I'm trying to walk in the ocean again, but I, I'm afraid of water. So, oh, it was so depressing. Laura runs into a prosecutor one day and they begin chatting. And what that prosecutor tells her makes matters even worse. And once again, changes the course of her life. So I go to the door and he says to me, who are you? I said, I'm Laura Slutsky. You're his sister? I said, yeah. He said, he wanted to kill you. You what? You what? what? Well, that was it. From that moment on, my brain felt like celery <laughs> cracked. So I had two parts of my brain. I, I'm just 45 years later getting it together. It's hard to comprehend the notion that a common cold or living on her own saved Laura's life. If she was at home on the day Roy snapped, he would have stabbed her to death. Laura has done serious inner work on herself to reevaluate her life and what has happened. She makes a good point right here. Mental health has to come out of the closet. Mental illness is an illness. My family was shunned. Shunned. We have to talk about it. Why am I doing it 45 years later? Because it's safe now. It's safe now. Wow, that's so powerful. Roy went from one hospital to another throughout the years. Laura says she had no family left. Her mother was a mess, just numb. In every way that matters, she lost her parents on that day Roy committed murder. Their entire life focus was placed on him and his mental illness all over again. Mm, I can see that. Yet within it all, she did not want her brother to go to prison. She visits the district attorney and pleads with him that her brother is mentally ill, sick. He needs to be treated, not locked away and forgotten about. Thankfully, the DA agrees. And that was the beginning of getting Roy to plead insanity and eventually being remanded to a mental hospital instead of prison, where he would have been swallowed up by the system inside there. Laura truly felt on the day Richard Lesser was murdered, she died too. That might sound harsh or even unremorseful to Richard and his family, but that's not the intention, Laura says. She is speaking about her personal experience being the victim of her brother's madness. She visited Roy throughout the years. She feels sorry for him. You know, I, I mean, I can see that. Of course, the sympathy and remorse she has for Richard Lesser and his family is even more immense. And yet, how could she even demonstrate that to them? 
No words can explain. No words matter. No amount of apology or sorrow can be expressed. What does one say to rectify or reconcile with a family who lost so much in one moment of time? That's so tough. And those are good questions, probably that don't have any answers. And as someone with a family full of lawyers, I do have to ask, what happened with these lawsuits? The judgment in the cases Richard's family brought against the hospital and Laura's family were settled, both in favor of the lesser family. The terms are private. There were appeals which were lost. And I'm kind of afraid to ask, but where is Roy today? You know, as far as Laura knows, Roy Slutsky is still confined to a mental hospital. She hasn't had any contact with him in quite some time, actually. Okay. I want to conclude with this. 16-year-old Richard Lesser was an honor student. He was captain of the debate team at Hewlett High School and a respected and valued member of the student government. Everyone loved this boy. Mm. I mean, I say that about a lot of victims, but it's true. Everyone loved this kid. He would have gone on in life to do big things. There is no question in my mind about that. I'd like Catherine, if she would please, to read something. If you know someone struggling with mental illness or if you yourself feel that something is going on, please visit the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration or samhsa.gov at samhsa.gov or call 1-800-662-HELP. SAMHSA's National Helpline is a free, confidential, 24-7, 365-day-a-year treatment, referral, and information service for individuals and families facing mental health and or substance abuse disorders. If you want to hear more about Laura and her story, you can Google Laura Slutsky at Triad Theater and watch the entire show. It's worth a watch. It is. And you can see in Laura's face the comedian and performer she was always meant to be and that she finally is. I'd also like to thank iHeart producer Morgan Lavoie for bringing this story to my attention and introducing me to Laura Slutsky. Thank you for listening and continuing to help grow this podcast. Catherine and I are extremely grateful and humbled by how many of you listen each week. As always, be safe, be aware, and tune in next week. Sources for today's episode come from Suspect, 25, held in stabbing death of boy, 16, on L.I. by Dina Kleiman, December 4th, 1977. Not guilty verdict finds killer insane. New York Times staff, April 27th, 1978. YouTube video, Laura Slutsky at Triad Theater. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.